Welcome to the RUF City Campus podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit give to ruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome again to RUF. As I said earlier, RUF is a community of students learning how to love God and love our neighbors because God has loved us first. And last week we said we are leaning pretty hard into the community side of that identity, of that mission in RUF this semester, because all semester long we're looking at what the Bible teaches about relationships. And last week we looked at the very first few chapters of the Bible and we saw how because we are made in the image of a relational God, that God exists in this perfect community of love within himself and then he makes us in that likeness. Because we are made in that image, our relationships, our life and community with one another has the potential to fill our lives with immense joy. But also we saw that because of sin, our life and community with one another has the potential to fill our lives with intense and immense pain as well. And this week we're leaning into a slightly different side of that identity, of that mission statement that's there on your handout. Because we say we we want to be a community of students learning to love God and love our neighbors because God has first loved us. And if we're going to do that and do that well, if we're going to live lives of love, we probably ought to know what love actually is. And we can't just assume that we all have an agreed upon uh, definition of what love is. Because I can say, I love football, and I love tacos, and I love my wife, and I love my children, and I love lamp. And I can mean completely different things. I'm using the same word, but I mean completely different things. And so we, it's actually really important for us to be very particular about our definition of love, that we rightly understand what love is. This really matters. I recently read about um, how, it's sort of an interesting factoid, that if, um, if an airline pilot sets the course for the airplane and he just misses it by one degree, right? You understand that there's 360 degrees in a circle and if he just is off one click, for every uh, mile that he travels or she travels, they'll miss their intended destination by 92 feet. So even just one tiny little, so for, for those of you who aren't math people, because that's me, um, <clears throat> here's what this means. Put it in, in context, right? For every 60 miles that they fly, they miss their target by one mile. So if you are flying from uh, JFK to LAX, if you're flying from New York City to Los Angeles, by the time you get from New York to California, if your pilot has, has missed the mark just by one degree, which is just a tiny little smidgen, you'll miss LAX by 40 miles. So like b- being set on the right trajectory actually really matters. If, if he misses it by 40 miles, By only being off by one degree, imagine if we miss it by two degrees, five degrees, or 15 degrees. And that's why it matters that we rightly understand our love, or what love is, because if our aim, if our destination is to be a community of love, to be people who live lives of love, then we better be aimed at the right thing. We better rightly understand what love is. So that's what we're going to look at tonight from Luke chapter 6. 
beginning in verse 27. Let's look together. It's printed in your handout. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Since this is God's Word and not my own, let's pray and ask for His help as we seek to understand it tonight. God, we do indeed need your help to hear what it is that you would have us to hear from this passage. Hear what it is you would have us to hear about ourselves and about you, about your Son. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do that. That you would open our eyes and unclog our ears and soften our hearts and change us where we cannot change ourselves. Make us loving people. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. So three aspects of love that we're going to look at tonight. This is your outline if you're an outline person. We're going to look at what love is not, what love is, and why love matters. What love is not, what love is, and why love matters. So first, what love is not. Uh, There was a song by a musician named Jason Mraz a couple of years ago called Love Someone. Some of you may be familiar with this song. This is the chorus. I'm going to read to you the lyrics. I'm not going to sing it to you for sure. Um, I'm going to read to you the lyrics of the chorus of the song. It's sung several times throughout the song. He says, When you love someone, your heartbeat beats so loud. When you love someone, your feet can't feel the ground. Shining stars seem to congregate around your face when you love someone. In other words, love is this wonderful metaphysical experience. It it, it makes you feel transcendent, more alive than you have ever felt before. This is sort of our default definition of love in our culture. This is what we think, this is how we talk about love. I'll give you some examples. We say things like, I love live music. And what we mean when we say that is, I love the experience of going to the concert hall and listening to world-class musicians play Beethoven or Bach or whomever, and like letting that music just wash over me. I love that experience. Or I love going you know, to some small listening room in the village and listening to jazz and listening to the pianist like moan along as he's playing the piano. As he's playing the piano, if you've ever been to a jazz club in Greenwich, you're like, I love that experience. It makes me feel alive. That's what we mean when we say love. Or we say things like, I love exercise. That's not me. But some of you love to exercise. And what you mean when you say that is it energizes me. It makes me feel good about myself and about my body. I don't say I love exercise. I say I love donuts. (laughs) I love donuts. 
Uh, they taste delicious. That particular combination of butter and sugar and gluten makes me feel amazing for about five minutes, and then it makes me feel terrible. That's what we mean when we say love with respect to people, right? We say, I love this friend, I love this family member, I love this boyfriend or girlfriend, because they accept me. They affirm me. They make me feel safe and comfortable in my own skin. They, they just get me. That's what we mean when we use the word love. That love is this sensation that I get when someone or something makes me feel good. That's what we mean when we say love. Someone or some, that particular moment when a particular someone or something makes me feel good. Now, if that is the way that we think about love, we have a few problems with that. The first problem with that definition of love is that it is emotionally driven. It is driven by our feelings. Now, please, do not hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that your feelings are bad or that your emotions are bad. I actually think those are God-given gifts and those are good things. But they are terrible for driving your life decisions. They are completely unreliable for driving your life decisions. I'll just give you an example from my own life. When I was a kid, I loved country music. Loved it so, so much. Some of you are like, I'll never listen to him again. Um, I loved country music so much so that like we would go in, I would be in carpool with like random kids from the neighborhood on the way to school and a country music song would come on and I had like no shame and I would just be belting it out. I have the vivid memory of going to Lane Holby's birthday party when I was like nine or 10 years old and he went to a different school and there were these, um, there were a bunch of kids there that I didn't know. And one of the kids there asked me, what do you want to be when I, when you grow up? And I was like, oh, easy. I want to be a country singer or a professional baseball player. Or if I'm lucky, I want to be both. Like I can remember saying that I was standing in his bedroom and like, I don't know why I remember that, but I remember that I loved country music. I don't really love country music anymore. It's not really my thing. My feelings about country music have changed. And because we're just talking about my taste in music, it's really actually not that big of a deal for me to have shifted my feelings about what kind of music that I talk about or what kind of music that I listen to. But when we're talking about our taste in people, it becomes a much bigger deal. When we're talking about the sort of people that we are willing to relate to, the sort of people that we are willing to invest in, it becomes a much bigger deal. Because if we only choose to invest in relationships with people who make us feel a certain way, our social circles will be incredibly narrow. Incredibly narrow. There's a, there's a huge field of study. A ton of ink is being spilled. I'm sure some of you have read about this. On the idea of the, the digital echo chamber, that the people, the lives that we live online, um, the people that we choose to follow and listen to and the articles we choose to read on all of our social media spheres, they tend to be people who look like us, who live in similar places to us, um, who talk like us, who like the things that we like, who enjoy the kind of food that we like, uh, who love the things we love and hate the things we hate. That's who we surround ourselves with in our digital circles. And there's all this research going on about how dysfunctional and destructive that is when our world becomes so narrow that we have this, we have a really deep misconceptions about the way that the world is when our world becomes so narrow. And when we define love, when we base relationships on how we feel, one of the mistakes that we make is we actually repeat the mistakes of our digital lives and our actual relational lives. Because our worlds become narrow and we only end up relating to people who make us feel a certain way, who like what we like and hate what we hate. That's really dangerous. But it's not just that our social circles become narrow, it's also that our relationships become incredibly temporary. 
because they're tied to a particular moment and a particular feeling. Eventually, the people that you relate to will stop making you feel the way that they initially made you feel. And vice versa. You will stop making them feel the way that you initially made them feel when that relationship came to be. And so what that means is that whether that's a, a friendship or a romantic relationship or a family relationship, that eventually, when usually it's when you begin to see one another's flaws and you're like, mm, I'm not so sure. You begin to pull back, create some distance. And what we say is, oh, we just drifted apart. But I don't really think, usually people don't just drift apart. That's an intentional conscious choice that we make because we think, you know what, I'm not, I'm not sure I like what I see in that person. And so we pull back. And what that means is that most of our relationships are temporary because eventually you will see flaws in everyone. And so our relationships lack permanence. So um, the, the flaw in defining relationships and defining love as, as a particular moment when a particular person makes me feel good, the first is that it's emotionally driven and that is unstable. And the second is that it is temporary. And so all of our relationships will be temporary and no one will really know you and you will really know them, won't really know them. But the last, and I think the most pernicious of the errors of this particular definition of love is that what it means is that all of our relationships are inherently self-centered. All of our relationships will be inherently self-centered because what's happening when, when we define love as, and we go looking for love and what we're looking for is you make me feel a particular way, what that means is that we go into relationships, relationships looking to get something from the other person rather than to give. We unknowingly enter into relationships asking, what am I getting out of this? That we are looking automatically to receive a particular feeling or experience or benefit, which is inherently selfish. Imagine for a moment, I would like to imagine this as well. Imagine for a moment that you win the lottery. So one minute you're just poor old college student you, and the next minute you have hundreds of millions of dollars. And as soon as that begins to happen, all sorts of weirdos begin to creep back into your life, like random family members that you've never even heard of and friends from pre-K and like people who are like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry we lost touch. Like I've missed you so much and like we should get together and catch up. And you know, if you just hit the lottery, that they don't want you. They don't want relationship with you. They want your stuff. They want your money. And we know like that's deeply insulting. And you would know that's not love. But we do that all the time. We enter into relationships looking for affirmation. Affirmation of our personalities, of our talents. We enter into relationships looking for sympathy or solidarity for difficult circumstances. We look, enter into relationships looking for carefree fun. We look, enter into relationships looking for connections for our career. And when we don't find it, if we don't find it, we just move on to the next person. We just move on. And what we're doing when we say that is, I don't actually want you. I want your stuff. I want what you can give me. I want what you can make me feel. And that inherently is not love. Listen to how Jesus describes this problem. Look at verse 32. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back 
the same amount. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus keeps repeating a couple of phrases. He repeats this question. What benefit is that to you? And it's kind of an interesting thing because he, he is setting up the, these, he's sort of talking about these reciprocal relationships, right? Like you scratch my back and I scratch yours. You take care of me and I take care of you. And so he asks this question, what benefit is that to you? And on the surface, it seems like, well, actually it's quite beneficial because I love you and you love me and I give you what you think you need and you give me what I think I need and everybody's happy, right? But Jesus is actually going for something a little bit deeper. He's driving at something deeper because he repeats another phrase. He repeats this phrase, even sinners do that. Even sinners can do that. And now we have to remember what, what Jesus is, is doing here. He's not just like speaking into the void. He's actually speaking to particular people. There's a group of people who've gathered around Jesus. And, and he doesn't define what he means by sinners. And I think that's very intentional. He doesn't put any parameters on that. And I think what he's doing is actually playing on our pride. That we all tend to think, no matter whether you're a religious person or not, you have some category of people that you think, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not the best person in the world, but I'm better than them. And I think Jesus is playing on that instinct in us. And sinner is sort of the, the shorthand for that. And so he's saying, listen, even sinners do that. Even the people that you love to despise. Even the people, uh, even the people that you love to look down upon, even the worst kinds of people that you can imagine, they do that. And so he asks the question, what, what good is that? How can you give credit to yourself for that? How can you call that loving? How can you sort of pat yourself on the back? How is that exceptional just for being loving when actually you're just giving so that you can get? That's, Jesus is saying, listen, that's not love. That's bartering. And that's a transaction. You're making a sale. You're not actually loving someone. Anyone, he's, he's saying, listen, anyone can be kind to or do good to the people who will return the favor. Anyone can love the people who will love them back and who make them feel good. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not actually love. That's selfishness disguised as service. So, if that's not love, what is love? What is love? C.S. Lewis, as usual, is very helpful. He says this. He says, love in the Christian sense does not mean emotion. It is a state, not of the feelings, but of the will. The state of the will we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. Now, what is Lewis saying there? He's saying, listen, we naturally, like, we come out of the womb ready to do good to ourselves. Ready to take care of ourselves. And love, learning to love, is learning to, to do that for other people. To take that instinct to take care of myself, to do good to myself, and place it on other people. Another theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he puts it this way. He says, the essence of love is to place your happiness inside someone else's happiness. The essence of love is to place your happiness and your well-being inside the happiness and well-being of another person. Jesus describes it this way. Look, look at verse 27 with me. He says, but I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And he kind of sums it up again in verse 35. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, 
He says, love your enemies. And what he doesn't mean by that is feel all the feels for your enemies. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean fall in love with your enemies. No. What does, he, how, what does he describe? He says, listen, do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Turn the other cheek. In other words, when they wrong you, do not return evil with evil. Repay evil with good. Like absorb their wrongdoing into yourself. Give away the very clothes on your back. Give your money generously and liberally and do all of this without expecting or asking anything in return. Now, a couple of things we need to notice about this. Jesus' definition of love is incredibly practical. It's incredibly practical. He doesn't say anything about how we feel towards those people or how those people make us feel. He says a lot about how you serve them practically, about how you meet their needs, even and especially when they are unjust and unkind and unfair and ungrateful towards you. Jesus' definition is inherently practical, but it's also incredibly painful. Did you notice that? That Jesus' definition of love presupposes loss. It presupposes sacrifice. It assumes that you will have something that is yours, and at the end of the day, you will not have it anymore, and you won't get it back because you gave it away to somebody else. It presupposes loss. The way that Jesus defines love, my shorthand for it is this way, and I'm stealing this from a pastor and mentor friend of mine in Atlanta. He says this, love is my commitment to doing what it takes to help another person experience goodness. Biblically speaking, love is my commitment to doing what it takes to help another person experience goodness. Now, you hear that definition, I hear that definition, and I think, that sounds horrible. (laughs) I don't want to do that. I don't want to commit myself to helping another person experience their goodness because I know that is going to cost me. And and while, yes, it is hard and it is costly, it's also beautiful. I think when we experience that and when we see that, it resonates with us deeply. There's a pastor in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, by the name of Joe Novenson. Some of you may have heard of him. And before he became a pastor, when he was a young man, um, right right after he got married, he was working in a steel mill. And where he was working, the, the job that he had is he was feeding these, like, steel sheets in between these two giant rollers. Um, so that the sheets could be flattened out and then put to another part of the factory so they could be cut for some sort of fabrication for construction. And early on in his marriage, a few months into his marriage, he's feeding these sheets into this roller and both of his hands go in between the rollers and they're crushed. And for many, many years, he lost the use of his hands. After a lot of surgeries and a lot of physical therapy, he now has partial use of both of his hands. But for many years, his hands were completely incapacitated. Now, keep in mind, he's newly married. They're just a few months into their marriage, and he has absolutely no use of his hands. So now, his new wife, everything that he used to do with his hands, she has to do for him. He has, she has to dress him. She has to feed him. She has to bathe him. She has to bandage his wounds. She has to help him use the bathroom and everything that that entails. Anything that he used to use his hands for, she now has to do for him. And when Joe reflected on this experience, he he talks about how she did not do this because it made her feel good. It was at times humiliating for both of them. It was disgusting. It was inconvenient. It was gross. It was awful. He says, listen, she didn't do this because it made her feel good. She did this because she loved me. 
She did this because she loved me. Here's the question. What could possibly empower someone to do that? What could possibly empower someone in a relationship like that to not just cut and run, right? They're just a few months into marriage. She's thinking, you know what? I I haven't been in this too long. I can get out now, kind of cut my losses. This is not what I signed up for. What would compel someone to say, you know what? I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes so that you can experience good. Look together with me the end of verse 35. Jesus says, For he, that is God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, again, Jesus is not speaking into the vacuum. There are people who are gathered around him. And what is he doing here? Who is he talking to? He's saying, listen, God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And you must be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, what is Jesus implying here? He's implying you People who are standing around here listening to me, you are ungrateful. You are evil. Those are the things that flow out of your heart and out of my heart. And what he's saying is, listen, you need the Father's mercy. You need to be spared. You need to not receive what is coming to you, what you have rightly earned. In the book of 1 John, John says this, he says, we love because God first loved us. John is saying, love begets love. And we love because God has first loved us. And then he goes on to explain, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, he says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were so awesome, no, and that while we were yet sinners, and that while we were yet his enemies, he says a couple of verses later, Christ died for us. While we were yet his enemies. In other words, Jesus didn't die because we were already so lovely. He, he died actually to make us lovely. He didn't die because we were already living these lives of incredibly selfless love, and we just needed an example to show us the way. He died because we naturally live lives of incredible selfishness. And that selfishness destroys our relationships and it dishonors God. And he committed himself to do whatever it took so that we could experience goodness. That's what Jesus did. Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul in a different place, he says, Before the foundation of the world, God chose, God resolved, God committed himself to bless his people with every spiritual blessing in Christ, to make them holy and blameless, to adopt them as his own beloved children, to forgive their sins by his own blood, to lavish his love upon them. He committed himself. He resolved within himself. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes so that these people can experience goodness in my presence, even if that means that I must die for them. That, my friends, is love. That is love. Now, think with me for a minute about when you are tempted to be selfish in your relationships and why that is. 
when you are tempted to be selfish in your relationship and why that is. And I think most of the time, maybe all of the time, the reason that we are selfish in our relationships is because we think, I don't have what I need, so I'm going to take it. You people aren't giving me what I deserve, so I'm just going to take it from you. And so we think things like, you know what, I don't think people notice me the way that I deserve to be noticed. I don't think people love me the way that I deserve to be loved. I don't think people value me the way that I deserve to be valued. And honestly, that actually may be true. And we may not even realize that all the time. It may just be subconscious. We may be unaware of it. But we carry those thoughts into our relationships. And so what we do is we we cope with it by living to be noticed. Living to be loved. Living to be appreciated. Living to be valued. And we do this in a lot of different ways. We do this by being excellent. We do this by being excellent in our academics. We do this by being excellent as a musician or as an artist. We do this by being excellent in our appearance and the kind of clothes that we wear. And what we're doing when we pursue excellence for this reason is we're saying, I'm going to get from you what I don't think I have. I'm just going to take it. I'm going to be exceptional so that you must love me that you must notice me, that you must appreciate me and value me. We do this by wearing our emotions on our sleeves. I'll get what I don't have by being vulnerable, by being so like ruthlessly authentic with people, so emotionally engaged and in tune with myself and other people that they must notice me and love me and value me because I bring so much emotional energy to the table. Or we do this sometimes by being happy and easygoing. Because this is the way that I'm going to take and get what I don't have by being easy to get along with and helpful and fun and the life of the party so that they must love me and they must notice me and they must appreciate me because who wouldn't want to be around me? And we do this because we feel deficient. Because we feel like we don't have what we need. But what if you entered into a relationship knowing that you already had what you need? What if you entered into relationship not empty, but full? Because this is precisely what Jesus has done in his self-giving love. He's actually given us everything that we need. Think about it this way. When you fear that you are a nobody, that nobody notices you, and you're actually not worthy of being noticed, Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 15 about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And one of those sheep wanders off. Now, keep in mind, this shepherd still has 99 sheep. He's doing pretty good. But when that one sheep wanders off, that shepherd is crushed. And so he leaves, he abandons, irresponsibly abandons the 99 and goes after the one. And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep. That's how much I notice you. That's how much you matter to me. And when you fear that you're unlovable, that if people really knew you, down to your core, they would run and hide. Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love for you. If anybody knows you to your core, it's your maker. If anybody knows all the horrible things that you've done and all the terrible things that have been done to you, it's God. And yet, his love to you, the psalmist says, is is beyond comprehension. It won't fit into your brain. When when you feel worthless, when you worry, you know what, I just, I don't really think I bring value to the table. 
I'm not really sure people have legitimate reason to care about me. The prophet Zephaniah says this. He talks about how God will rejoice over his people with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We don't use that word exult very often. Let me just tell you, I mean, what the prophet is saying is, listen, God's love for you is so intense that it can't help but spill over into song. I have three small children, and my kids, when they're happy, they just walk around singing. Because that's what kids do, and that's what God does for you. That you bring him so much joy that it just spills over into song, he can't help but rejoice over you. Therefore, we can actually move into relationships with fullness, looking to serve, rather than emptiness needing to take because what we need, everything that we need, we actually already have in Jesus. He's given us all of it because he has loved us in this way, committed himself to doing what it takes to help us experience goodness. Lastly, and hopefully briefly, because it's hot in here, why love matters. Why does love matter? Why does all this matter? Um, Because, as we've already said, if we define love wrongly, even if we just miss it by a few clicks or a few degrees, it sets us on the wrong course. And and our lives, rather than actually being life-giving, will actually take life, will actually be destructive to us and to those around us. I'm going to give you a few examples. In our friendships and in our romantic relationships, if we are defining love by how you make me feel, and love is when you make me feel good, If we look to our friendships and our romantic relationships to make us happy, to fill our lives with meaning and joy, it will make us demanding and cynical and lonely. Let me explain what I mean by those things. It will make us demanding. Because if we are looking to other people to fill us up, we will be incredibly impatient with them. When they are not attentive, when they are not interesting, when they are not available, when they are not fun, when they are not attractive, we will leave very little room for them to be actual human beings with actual flaws and fears, and mistakes, and sins. We'll be incredibly demanding. We'll also be really cynical because, you know what? People can't do that. I can't do that. I'm a professional Christian, and I can't do that. I can't live up to other people's expectations of me. People won't always be able to give you the feelings and experiences that you long for from them, and so you'll enter into relationships cynically. You'll enter into relationships expecting disappointment, and the way that you guard yourself from future disappointment is by being cynical, by being distrusting and always suspicious of other people's motives and doubting their sincerity, and it hardens you. It makes you cynical. Lastly, it makes you lonely. Because if that is your paradigm for love, then no one actually really knows you and you don't actually really know anybody else. Because as soon as you start to see flaws, whether in yourself or in other people, they they see your flaws or you see their flaws, it gets hard and you stop feeling love and you pull back. And everybody who's in that arrangement implicitly understands, as long as I'm happy, I'm here. And as soon as I'm not, I'm gone. Which makes you really lonely. Because if that is your arrangement with someone, you'll never really feel the freedom to be honest, to be yourself. Because you'll always be worrying, is this the thing? Is this the thing that's going to send them packing? 
So when we define love wrongly in our friendships and in our romantic relationships, it makes us demanding and cynical and lonely. But, excuse me, if we understand love as committing ourselves to their good, then we are free to let people be people, including ourselves. Yes, we will disappoint other people and they will disappoint us, but that's just when it's getting good. That's not when it's starting to go haywire. That's actually when it's starting to get good because now you're relating to a real person and not an Instagram person. Not a curated person, but an actual human being. And that's when it's getting good. And when we understand relationships that way, it frees us because every disappointment doesn't mean that the relationship is on the line. It's actually an opportunity for us to show mercy to other people and for other people to show mercy to us, to remind us of the mercy that God has shown us. And so it frees us. We're now free to stop performing, to listen, to ask questions, to say hard things, to hear hard things. It sets us free. We need the right definition of love to set us on the right course in friendship and in romance. We also need the right definition of love to set us on the right course in our relationship with God. If we come looking to God to make us feel a certain way, to make us feel good about ourselves or about our circumstances, to affirm us and never challenge us, to never allow us to suffer, we will be miserable. You'll be miserable. And you won't actually be able to experience the love that God has for you. Because sometimes that love means that he's going to reveal your mess to you. He's going to open your eyes to your blind spots, the things about yourself that you've never seen before or that you've seen before and you've tried to forget. He's going to help you see them. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. Because those things, you know, we we all have certain sins that we love to love. And those things, even though we love them, are destroying us. And because Jesus loves us, he says, listen, you can't live like that anymore. And he calls us out of sin and into holiness, which is hard, but it actually brings life to us and to those around us. And sometimes he's going to allow suffering to come into our lives. And sometimes we won't understand why that is. But we know that it's because he loves us. And so when we define love rightly, we actually allow God to be God. We learn to trust him even when, and especially when, we do not understand why our lives are the way that they are. But again, let's be honest. This is hard. This is not easy. This kind of love is incredibly hard. C.S. Lewis, again, is very helpful, and I'll close with this. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable and irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. As hard as it is for you and me to hear that, C.S. Lewis is exactly right. Love is not easy. It is not safe. It often does not feel good. It is painful. It is costly, but it is beautiful. And here's the good news. Jesus has not left you alone. 
As you endeavor to live a life of love, you are not on your own. Jesus has actually given you everything that you need. He did not stay safe. He became vulnerable. Even unto death, he did whatever it took so that you and I could experience goodness. He's given you everything you need. He's given you himself in love. Let's pray. Thank you.